Welcome to episode 88 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Ife Huang, volunteer and co-lead of the Presenters and Schedulers Action Team for CCL, the Citizens Climate Lobby. Ife is a 28-year-old software engineer who lives and works in Palo Alto. Two years ago, after reading about the devastating effects of climate change in Jakarta, she Googled how she could help and found the community at CCL, where she co-founded and now leads the Motivational Presenting Project. Oh yeah, Ife also has a master's degree in computer science from Stanford University and a bachelor's in engineering from Caltech. COVID infections are declining and vaccine availability is up, but the virus continues to mutate So please be careful. And remember, we're all in this together. While being cautious and alert, please be supportive and kind. And take the time to thank the people that are taking personal risks to keep our world moving forward. And if you are one of those people, thank you very, very much. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Krivat. And I'm here with Ife Huang, volunteer and co-lead of the Presenters and Schedulers Action Team at the Citizens Climate Lobby. Ife, welcome to the Climate Champions. Thank you so much for having me here. It's great to be here. With regards to climate change, what was your motivating moment that got you engaged to do something? I feel like I'm unlike a lot of the people that you feature on your podcast. I think most people that you have on your show, they work in the energy sector or they have been involved with this problem of climate change for a long time. And I honestly have not been very engaged with this problem until about two years ago. And this is not because I didn't know about climate change. I knew about it for a long time. I studied science in school. We learned about the greenhouse gas effect and how that would lead to global warming. And I hear about it on the news a lot too, especially in the recent years. I'll read about how there are more and more hurricanes in the Gulf Coast every year, or how every summer there's another round of record-setting temperatures. And in the Bay Area where I live in California, that has translated to more severe droughts, which then exacerbate the fires that we have. So this past year, the fires have been crazy, to say the least. There would be multiple weeks straight where I couldn't see the sun. And I couldn't go outside because air pollution levels were so dangerous. So this problem, it's impossible to ignore. But at the same time, it can be hard to engage with a problem. I think for ordinary citizens like me, first of all, the problem can feel too large. It feels so pervasive. Like I am this tiny individual, one of over 7 billion people on this planet. And climate change is this gigantic thing that is all pervasive. One little thing that I do here, how is that going to compare to this all-encompassing thing that is all around us in this world? So there's almost this emotional blocker when approaching this problem. And not only that, this problem is so embedded into our system today. Everything that I use, the phone that I use every day, the laptop that I'm using right now to communicate with you, All of this was made through energy that we generate as a society. And that energy right now mostly comes from fossil fuels. So it felt like everything in our society was built off of fossil fuels. Society was standing on these pillars of fossil fuels. And how can I, as this tiny individual, change the entire system? And that was the problem that I struggled with for a very long time. But really, I think... After reading about this so much, more and more articles every year, as well as seeing it in front of me in the Bay Area, it was also a problem that was very hard to ignore. And I think my pivotal moment was actually a little removed from where I currently am, surprisingly. But it was when I read about how climate change was affecting Jakarta, the capital of Indonesia. And you might think, 
oh, that's so far away, you know, for most people, their pivotal moment was a little closer to home, but I spent a year living in Southeast Asia. I traveled the region. I was living in Singapore at the time, and I really fell in love with that region. Something that really resonates with me is learning about other cultures, other ways of life, other ways of thinking about the world. And Southeast Asia is just this very beautiful and diverse place. So when I moved back to the Bay, I stumbled upon this article about Jakarta and how the city was sinking at such a fast rate that the government had to move their capital away from Jakarta because it was unsustainable. The floods were getting worse and worse every year. And I'm thinking, okay, yeah, the government can move the capital, but there are 10 million people still living in Jakarta. What are they going to do? How are they going to survive? It's a combination of both sea level rise and also overpopulation. People are just pumping water out of the ground and the rock becomes dense and it sinks. And it really occurred to me in that moment that we could lose entire cultures, entire ways of thinking, this wonderful diversity that we have on our planet because of climate change. And that to me was very scary. So I really wanted to do something about it. And it was hard to engage with this problem at first, but the first thing you do when you have a question is you Google it. So I Googled ways to get involved in my community and I found Citizens Climate Lobby. I think Citizens Climate Lobby, or CCL for short, they stood out to me because of the policies that they were advocating. So they're advocating for a carbon tax, which speaks to me because I'm sort of paralyzed by this idea of, you know, tiny me, giant system, how do we tackle that system? They have this way of thinking about it that really addresses that, and we can get into that later if you'd like. But what really kept me at CCL, though, was this sense of community that I'm not alone, that there are so many other people who care so deeply about this problem and are really working towards making a difference. So just having that community around me already increases my capacity to care. So that's one thing. I think it also gives me a sense of agency. It gives me the sense that there are actions that I can do to really make a difference. And I have seen throughout my time at CCL the results of some of the effort that I put into my advocacy. And that kind of translates to my last point, which is that CCL shows me that ordinary citizens can really make a difference. And I think that is so powerful. You know, just imagine that if everybody got involved, how impactful could that be? And I think we've seen examples of this recently, of ordinary people making a difference. I think that concept can be hard to feel sometimes, especially before the final result as you are working towards a problem as one of the tiny people involved in the larger scheme. But it has really been done before. I think a great example of that is the elections recently in Georgia. Like nobody thought that Georgia would be a blue state, but it was the actions of individuals who registered themselves to vote, who then registered their communities to vote, and then went to neighboring communities and registered them to vote. And these were ordinary people doing it. These were not people whose names appear on billboards and who have millions of followers on Instagram. Or even the election of Donald Trump, for example. Donald Trump, at the time when he won the primaries, he was not the Republican establishment. Most Republican politicians were not immediately supportive of Trump. But it was ordinary people who went out and said, I want him as my president. And those ordinary people elected him. Ordinary people, I think, at the end of the day, really do make a difference. Even if each individual contribution may feel small, they can really come together in amazing ways that can change the world. And especially if you see that community around you, if you feel that community around you, it can be really empowering. What are your personal drivers? What gets you up in the morning to fight the good fight? I really believe that if we don't do something about this, the world will be unsustainable. And it will get worse and worse for many people. I think a lot of the times, people nowadays more than ever are asking the question of, is it too late to do something about climate change? And when I hear that, I don't think it's quite a binary answer. The way I think about it is that, yes, it is too late for some people. 
that is already too late. Those are the people who have died in natural disasters. Even recently, there was the polar vortex in Texas, and yeah, like 70 people died from that. For them, it was too late, and that number is only going to increase. And one day, it's probably going to hit people that I deeply care about. Like, what if it gets to my relatives or my friends or people that I don't want to live without? I think that is the scary part to me, and that is what I personally want to prevent. I think a lot of people would feel very similarly about their communities. And so that is one of the things that drives me, is this idea that if we wait, more and more people will die because of climate change. I think the second thing that motivates me, though, is I have this obstinate hope that things can be turned around. And for this, I always like to look at history for similar examples. The example that I always think about is the ozone layer crisis about 30 or 40 years ago, when the ozone layer was depleting because of mostly chemicals that humans have released into the atmosphere called hydrofluorocarbons. And that was a huge deal. People were talking about it, and the international government decided to do something about it. They banned hydrofluorocarbons. Over 90 other countries agreed to come on board. And now, 30 years later, it's fine. It's basically back to normal. This idea that the environment can recover has been proven. The environment is adaptable. It's a living and breathing thing. So we've done it. These stories of success, that's another thing that really drives me. And I translate that into this hope that I think we can, for the majority of people, we can fix climate change, that it will not be too late. When you meet people that don't understand the scientific data or don't see the weather events that are occurring the same way you do, how do you explain climate change to them? This question kind of gets into what I do for CCL. So I am one of the co-leads of the National Presenters and Schedulers Action Team. On this action team, we're comprised of people from all over the U.S., and we go to local organizations in our area, and we do presentations about climate change. We talk to them about the problems of climate change, as well as its potential solutions, essentially engaging them in that conversation. And we have found over and over again, that people would listen. And then at the end of the presentation, they would come up to us and they would say, oh, well, thank you. I learned a lot. And uh, keep doing what you're doing. And then they would just leave. And to me, that was always a bit confusing because in the presentation, we would basically tell them that climate change was a dire problem and we needed to fix it. So if they agreed with us, if they found our presentation informative, why are they not joining us? So after doing these presentations, not seeing a lot of tangible results, we read up on climate change communications. One piece of research that we found super helpful was the research done by Dr. Sabine Marks. She was a director of research at the Earth Institute at Columbia University. And she says that most people, they will only selectively seek information. So during the course of a presentation, I'm throwing out a lot of things into the audience, right? And actually, what the audience is doing is that they're only capturing the information that already resonates with their current worldview. For most people, at least in the Bay Area, most people's current view is that yes, climate change is a problem, but it's not really that immediate of a problem and I don't need to worry about it now. So I'll just listen, maybe learn something, but I'm not really going to get involved. And even though I'm throwing things out there like we need to act now and we will reach these climate tipping points if we do not do something soon, they are not picking up on that because it doesn't resonate with their mental model. So now, knowing that people are selectively filtering information, how do we change their minds? So Dr. Marks and her team of researchers, they provide several tips that we have picked up along the way for getting our message across. I think one of the simplest things that you can do when you talk about climate change is to change the framing of it. For a lot of us, you and me and many others who are alarmed about climate change, we have what we believe are very logical scientific reasons for getting involved with climate change. But it's helpful to really get to know what your audience thinks about it, what they care about. So for example, if you're going to talk to a group that is very outdoorsy, talk to them about the environment, maybe about a local national park that everybody loves. If you are talking to a group that cares a lot about the healthcare system, 
frame it as a public health problem. If you're talking to people who care about social justice, frame climate change as a social justice issue. So framing the problem from the audience's point of view is one way to engage in. But why does that work? And that gets me to the point of this idea that Dr. Marx talks about, about there being these two modes of processing information. The first is called the analytical mode, and the second is called the experiential mode. So when you're looking at a graph, when you're dealing with numbers, when you're thinking through the logic, you are engaging your analytical mode of thinking. You're trying to sort through possibly objective information, trying to make a decision based on evidence, but it turns out that that is not the best way to change people's minds. A famous psychologist and professor at NYU, Jonathan Haidt, talks about in his book, The Righteous Mind, that especially when it comes to political and moral decisions, people tend to make decisions first based on instinct and then reason about it later. So leaning on this analytical mode of thinking, this mode rooted in reason and logic, that is not the best way to change people's points of view. It more serves for justifying already made decisions. So how do we change people's minds? That's where the experiential processing mode comes in. And that's when people are most open to receiving a new point of view. So what do I mean by experiential? I don't think that's a commonly used word. Experiential essentially means engaging people's emotions, bringing up a sensation, essentially creating an experience for your audience. So I always go back to this brilliant Maya Angelou quote, which is, people will forget what you said, people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And that, I think, that is a very effective way to communicate about climate change. So how do you do that? How do you bring out the experiential mode into your interaction with the audience? One way that I found was pretty effective is telling a personal story about climate change. Stories invite you to feel with the characters, right? They're very good at communicating emotion. And stories also, I think, depending on the storyteller and the story that you are telling, they present this vulnerability about the storyteller. This American professor and storyteller Brene Brown, she has this wonderful TED talk about how vulnerability is such a powerful thing because people empathize with the vulnerable. For example, people love Batman, not in spite of, but because of his vulnerabilities. He kind of has this troubled dark side to him, you know? <laughs> so if you make yourself vulnerable as a presenter, and if it's done in a genuine way, stories are a great way to bring out that experiential processing mode in the audience. A second tactic is engaging people in discussion. People are social creatures. When they are engaged in a discussion, they are more likely to bring up ideas and bring up solutions that benefit the greater group instead of more selfish decisions that maybe only benefit themselves. So if you get people to discuss ideas in a group, you're more likely to arrive at conclusions that benefit the entire community. And of course, climate change is definitely one example of a problem that involves putting the community ahead of the self. It's sometimes making sacrifices and decisions that don't immediately benefit yourself, but will benefit the community and future generations to come. In summary, I think going back to your original question of what do you do when somebody doesn't agree with you on climate change, I don't think you can just throw facts at it. I think you really have to engage people on a more personal level that brings out that experiential mode of thinking in the audience. So storytelling and active discussions are two ways to activate that experiential. And once the audience is there, it's much easier to get them to consider a new perspective on climate change. Another way to think about all these ideas, I think, is that what you're really trying to do here is build a relationship with your audience. When it comes to getting people to agree with you, you really first have to understand where they are coming from. The longer you spend with them, the more time you spend engaging in that conversation and really listening to them, you understanding their point of view, them understanding yours, the stronger that relationship is going to be. And while you might not agree on everything, I think you do really come closer together. And through that building of the relationship, what you're really trying to do here is build trust, right? 
Trust is what's lacking between two people when they don't agree on a topic. And investing in those relationships, taking the time to build out those relationships. That's how we should talk to people who don't agree with us on climate change. And that's how we're going to get more people on board. Can you elaborate more on Citizens Climate Lobby? CCL is an international organization that is focused on promoting the idea of carbon tax and passing it as legislation. Almost all of the chapters in the U.S. right now are focused on passing a carbon fee and dividend legislation at the national level. We're a primarily grassroots movement, so a lot of ordinary individuals volunteering their time. I guess I'll go into what we actually do. CCL approaches this problem holistically. We understand that in order to get legislation passed, the obvious thing is to keep in touch with your member of Congress, to make them aware of the effects of climate change, and to educate them on the benefits of a price on carbon. But also, there's a lot of other considerations that go into a congressional decision. For example, businesses in the area will influence what a member of Congress decides. The newspapers and media outlets in the region will also influence a Congress member's decision. And for us, what this means is that it translates to all these different volunteer action teams. So for example, we have the print media action team that is dedicated to writing letters to the editor and trying to gather official statements of support from local media outlets. There is the grassroots outreach action team, and they are dedicated to recruiting more supporters at the individual level at things like tabling events in the area. There's the presenters and schedulers action team, and that is my action team. We present to local organizations and try to get their support. Then there's the endorsements action team, and they try to get support from local governments in the area. And there's also the grass tops action team that tries to seek endorsements from local businesses. And so what we're really trying to do here is influence the entire system to put pressure on these members of Congress from all directions to take a stance on a carbon tax. Can you talk more about the carbon fee and the dividend? Yeah. So let's start with the carbon fee, also known as the carbon tax or price on carbon. The idea behind putting a price on carbon is very simple. Carbon, once extracted from the ground, has real consequences down the line, real monetary consequences. We're seeing this right now. Climate change is causing a lot of natural disasters. For example, when a hurricane happens, there's real damage that happens. You have to rebuild houses, you have to rebuild infrastructure, and that costs a lot of money. So the fair thing to do in that situation is to price carbon at its source, to say that the moment you extract it from the ground, you need to pay the price that it will eventually incur down the road. And the amazing thing about this is that this trickles through the entire system. So say, for example, you are a glass manufacturing company and you need energy to run your factories. So you could get your energy from a natural gas plant, or you could get it from a renewable solar farm. So let's just say that you picked the natural gas plant. With a price on carbon now, what happens is that the natural gas plant will have to pay a little more to the government for every ton of carbon that they extract from the ground. So their prices are going to go up. So then you, as the manufacturing company, your costs will go up because you have to pay more for your energy. And then let's say that your glass is going to make car windows. Well, the car company will have to charge a little more for their cars because they have to pay more for your glass, right? And at the end of the line now, the consumer will have to pay more for the car. So now let's take an alternate route where let's say there's another glass manufacturing company and they're using solar energy to power their factories. Solar is actually cheaper than natural gas in many parts of the US, and it will not be taxed because it does not emit carbon. So this glass manufacturing company that uses a solar farm will be able to make cheaper glass because it spends less on its energy bill. And people like cheap stuff. The car company would probably want to buy more of the cheaper glass, and then the consumer will probably go for the cheaper car, which uses the cheaper class, which is made using renewable energy. And so that is how it trickles through the entire system. When you put a price on carbon, 
people from all parts of the economy will now be incentivized to move away from fossil fuels and switch over to renewable energy sources. And that pours more money, more effort, more innovation into that space. And so that's the really cool thing about a price on carbon is that it kind of just tips the scale and changes the entire system all throughout without really having to do anything but put a price at its source. But then the question comes about, which is, all right, not everybody's going to switch over to renewables overnight. During this transition phase, things that are pretty necessary for everyday life will get a little more expensive for people. I think a good example of that is gas. So people are not going to switch over to electric cars overnight. During this transition period, when gas is taxed, the price of gas will go up. And so how do we protect the consumers? How do we make sure that people living from paycheck to paycheck, especially, are not suffering or stretched even thinner because of rising prices? So that's where the dividend part comes in. So when a government puts a price on carbon, they will collect a lot of money from that price, right? And then they have to do something with it. A dividend essentially means taking all that money and breaking it down equally into these amounts that will then be distributed back to individual citizens. And it turns out that through this scheme, it really benefits the people who are of lesser means or of lower income, because studies have shown that the richest 10% of people actually account for 50% of all emissions. Emissions right now are really heavily skewed to the wealthy. So now they are paying more for all their carbon emitting activities, which now goes back to bolster the expenses of the lower income. Under this scheme, the bottom 50% will generally see more money in their pockets at the end of the day. And that's what a dividend essentially tries to do. It tries to make sure that the bottom half of people are not harmed by this price on carbon, that they can actually benefit from this type of policy. And I also want to mention that this is actually not a novel idea. Over 3,500 economists and 27 Nobel laureates have supported this idea of a carbon fee and dividend. Many people in national government right now also support this, including Janet Yellen, who is the Treasury Secretary, as well as Pete Buttigieg, who is now the Transportation Secretary. George Schultz, one of the most widely respected conservatives, was also a very vocal supporter of the carbon fee and dividend. Even last month, Elon Musk went on the Joe Rogan show and talked about how much he loved the idea of a carbon fee and dividend. And he was explaining this to Joe and Joe was like, this sounds amazing. I don't understand why this is not a thing. And Elon's like, yeah, right? Like, I don't know. know." Um, These ideas have also been implemented in many other countries, including our neighbors in Canada. So it's not a new idea at all. It has a lot of support from across the board. Can you talk about your journey to where you are now? Yeah, so I mentioned this briefly at the beginning, but I don't really have a background in what I'm doing right now for CCL. I studied computer science in school. I was never very political. And I didn't have much experience with public speaking either. It still makes me nervous sometimes, most of the time, actually. So it's been a bit challenging. But I've realized that I feel quite passionate about this. And this is what I want to do. I've also been very fortunate as well to have found great mentors at CCL who have helped me along this journey, especially my mentor, Dave Kane, who has been instrumental in pushing the ideas of using messaging that evokes emotion instead of ones that are based in science to explain climate change. He was the one that really started this project. And together, we founded the Motivational Presenting Team, which is a sub-team under the Presenters and Schedulers Action umbrella that is really dedicated to this experiential messaging that I mentioned earlier. I've also never led a team this diverse before. We have people who are retired, people who are in college, also people across different ethnicities. And running that kind of team has been a challenge at times, but It's also a super rewarding experience. I'm really learning a lot from it. Essentially, through this whole experience, I feel like I'm stepping out of my bubble. And it's scary, but it's worth it. And I think more people should do it. I also think it's much easier to do as part of a community. I like the community I found at CCL. How has the pandemic affected what you and CCL do? Yeah, so I think it both 
helped and hurt. I'll start with the hurt part first. So it hurt us because obviously we weren't able to engage with our communities as effectively because everything is now remote. We aren't able to go to table events to recruit new members. And especially from the presenter side, we weren't able to engage people in that person-to-person interactions in our presentations. So that has been the major problem for presenters. The engagement is not the same through remote webinar. And a lot of people weren't very tech savvy at first either. So we struggled with the technical components of online presentations like setting up Zoom. But at the same time, I think it has helped in the sense that we're no longer bound by these physical barriers to communication. Everything has been on Zoom, so we are able to communicate more effectively with people all across the U.S. We've engaged with chapters in Illinois, in Montana, in Oregon to help them with their messaging. My family lives in Chicago, and so we did a presentation to their community in Illinois as well. One of my team members, Irene, she also lives in the Bay Area, but she was able to do a presentation to an audience in Texas where she is from. That was a really cool experience to really be able to reach across these physical barriers and have these conversations across so many miles. Can you talk about setbacks that you've had? I talked a little bit about the team that I run, the motivational presenting team. It's the small group of about eight people. But we span multiple generations, also different ethnicities. And it has been a bit of a challenge sometimes because people have different points of view. There are people who are adamant that a carbon fee and dividend is the only solution and we have to pass this. And then there are people who are not as sure and they don't want to discount other solutions. And so sometimes when you get these two opposing views, and we have pretty opinionated people on this team, it can get a little contentious. (laughs) And that has been hard because I don't think you want to stifle that communication. I think when we stop talking is when progress stops altogether. So you do want to encourage that conversation. But you want to encourage it in a way that is productive, right? That gets people to respect one another. So it's great to have these opinions surfaced and brought to light because I think we're all learning from one another, but it can be pretty challenging to work across the generational and cultural gaps, but it's something that we must do. So you just keep at it. And I think this also translates to some of the conversations that we have with organizations in our area. So we tried to build relationships with this nonprofit organization in the Bay Area, this environmental nonprofit. And we really hoped that they would compose a statement in support of a carbon tax. But they came back to us and they said they really didn't feel like it was their place to make a formal political endorsement. And so, yeah, we were kind of disappointed. We maintained the relationship. It's unclear where that relationship will go because what we did want was an endorsement. Right now, it's gotten to the point where we promote their events, they promote our events, but it's hard to be rejected. But I guess we are getting something out of it. So I asked about setbacks, and this sounds like a success in the end, which is great, but are there any successes that you're really proud of that you could talk about? Yeah, I guess I did mention two successes, but what is success? What is a setback? You must have a setback in order to have a success. You need to learn what you are doing wrong so you can do it better. So even if something doesn't go the way you planned it to, it's a success because you're learning from it. You're taking something away. And maybe here's an actual setback. When we first started championing the idea of experiential messaging, we tried a series of workshops with CCL chapters in Illinois and Montana to teach them how to do these styles of presentations. People from these chapters went to our workshops, but they never quite used the tips that we tried to give them. I watched a presentation later from that chapter in Illinois, and they were still using the old methods of pushing scientific evidence, using logic, 
And personally, I was a little disappointed uh, at the time. And I thought that possibly we were going down the wrong path. I wanted to kind of redo everything. But Dave insisted that we keep the same message. And we just ended up working with different groups. And that worked out a lot better. Yeah, I think my takeaway from that is that you're not going to get everyone. Some people won't agree with you. But if you really believe in what you do, you just keep at it. And I guess that's that's advocacy. <laughs> is there a success you want to talk about? Something you're very proud of? I think we've tried to reshape the way that Citizens Climate Lobby talks about climate change. I mentioned before that the traditional way of talking about climate change is here are all the facts, we're doomed, we got to do something, here's a solution, here's what the studies have shown, the solution will do, and let's do this, guys. <laughs> and we have been trying to move away from that. So my small working group, the motivational presenting team, we are trying to influence the greater citizens climate lobby to move away from that dialogue to one that is more about hope, that is led with stories that emphasize this experiential way of thinking for the audience. So it's been really cool to see that shift over time. And I think it culminated in something that happened last December. So in December of last year, we were invited to make a presentation at the National Conference, which is, of course, all online now. But it was cool to be able to get that messaging across to essentially all CCL volunteers across the nation. I think we had over 300 people show up to our session, which is more than we've ever had at any of our presentations. So that was really cool. And also recently, there's a series of trainings at CCL every month called the Core Volunteer Trainings. They're given to new volunteers who want to be involved. And earlier this year, they have started giving us a 20-minute segment where we can talk about motivational presenting. That has been really cool to be given that slot every month to do that. And I think a lot of this I have to attribute to my mentor, Dave, who has been amazing in pushing this through. He's been involved in the organization for a long time now, and he has great relationships with all these people who run CCL. He has always been amazing in pushing all of this through. Can you talk about your vision of the future? How do you see the world 20, 30, 40 years from now? Are we going to be okay? What I'd love to see in the future is just more people getting involved with this problem of climate change. I think climate change is as much a cultural problem as it is a technical or a political one. I think if we are to solve this problem, people need to change their habits. It will be individual people who need to go out and buy electric cars. It will be individual people who will choose not to eat meat or who will move into the cities. It has to be a cultural change. A lot of us will need to make these decisions and be a part of that change. I think you're also seeing this happen in other countries as well. I was reading a New York Times article about Brazil and how a lot of people in Brazil are now going vegetarian which is crazy to me because I've been to one Brazilian restaurant and it was a steakhouse and that was the most meat I've ever eaten in one night. Their food culture was very much centered around meat for a long time, but that's changing now. They're adapting to the times and I think we need to as well. So I think this world, this world that has undergone this cultural change with individual people contributing, I think this world is going to look great. I think the air will be cleaner. I think people will be eating healthier because they'll be eating more plants and less meat, and they'll live longer as a result. I think people will live closer together, and that will create a better sense of community. I think people will drive electric cars. I go running a lot in my neighborhood, and sometimes if there's somebody in front of me walking on the sidewalk, I will try to run on the street to maintain the six-foot distance. And sometimes a car will cut in front of me. And that car has exhaust, right? And so now I'm bringing in all this exhaust. But in my future world, this won't happen because people will be driving electric cars. <laughs> I don't know. I think also part of this, there'll be a wave of innovation, cultural change. I guess what I'm trying to say is that I'm really glad that you asked that question because ultimately, I think this is a great opportunity to envision that future, to have this goal in mind. It's also something for us to lean on, to help us keep going. 
as we push for climate change solutions, as we are undertaking this mission to save the planet. How has the pandemic changed that vision for you? I think the pandemic definitely made me understand what would happen if we didn't take action. So one of the things that happened in the Bay Area last year in the middle of the pandemic was also the fires. And there would be weeks on end where I could not go outside. And that's essentially what the pandemic was too. There was this sense of needing to protect yourself against the forces of nature. And that is exhausting. I knew that if climate change got worse, it would be that feeling forever. In a way, we've been invited to live with this protectionism mentality to get a real glimpse at what the effects of climate change would be like. And they're awful. (laughs) And I think that really just propelled me even further into my volunteer work because I didn't want that to happen. I think there have also been a lot of comparisons between the pandemic and climate change because they are both these sorts of problems where if you ignore it, if you wait, it's going to get worse. I think that's so true. If we don't do anything about climate change, it's going to get worse. We didn't do very much about the pandemic when it first started and look, it spread everywhere, right? So I think they're very clear analogies which just highlight how important it is to focus on climate change, to pour a little bit more time and effort into solving that problem. What's one piece of advice you would give to people that want to do something to help? A lot of people are very busy. What I like to tell people to do if they have just five minutes every month is call your member of Congress and tell them that you care about climate change and that you want them to do something about it. It's super simple. To be honest, I hadn't done this until two years ago. And I remember being surprised at how simple it was. This is what will happen. You're most likely not going to get your member of Congress. You'll get a staffer. And you just tell them what you care about. They'll write it down. They'll forward that message. It's super low-key. Let me emphasize again that it takes less than five minutes. And you might be wondering right now, will my call actually do anything? Will it actually make a difference? There have been studies published. There was one published by the Congressional Management Foundation that showed that members of Congress, our elected officials, they really do listen to constituents. The study found that 97% of members of Congress are influenced by an in-person visit from a constituent. 96% say that they are influenced by any sort of contact from constituents who represent other constituents. These are people like heads of organizations in your local community. And for phone calls, 96% of members of Congress say that they consider phone calls from constituents when making decisions on key issues. And so this is all to say that, yes, they do listen. They pay attention to what constituents do, what they say, and they use that to influence what they do at a national level. And so if you have just five minutes, call your member of Congress, tell them you care about climate change. I think also the other thing is that there are so many issues to call about. For some people, climate change is not as immediate of a problem as, say, maybe healthcare or social justice. These days, a lot of times, these other issues can take more of a front line. And what I will say to that is, yes, definitely call your member of Congress about all these other issues that you care about. But at the same time, like, drop a good word for climate change. Like, at the end, say something like, oh, by the way, I also care about climate change. Because the way I think about this is, if you receive a paycheck and you have a little bit left over, you're probably going to save it for retirement. Because you know that if you don't, it will affect you down the line. Like, you might regret it, right? Climate change is kind of like that. It's investing in your future. Because if we don't do something now, we're going to incur those costs down the line. And so while you very much should call about these other issues that you care about, slot climate change somewhere in there. Be more vocal about that as well. I think all of us have the capacity to care about multiple things. So call your member of Congress. And I also think that maybe not everybody feels comfortable getting involved politically. So if you care about climate change and you are not comfortable calling your member of Congress, luckily, climate change is an all-pervasive issue. There are so many ways to get involved. If you care about health, 
changing your diet and going plant-based is another way that you can help. Buying more environmentally friendly products. You could shop at farmer's markets because transport of food takes a lot of energy. Buy better light bulbs, plant a tree. There are so many things that you can do. Or even just talking about it to your immediate circle and beginning those conversations. I think that is super important. At the end of the day, I think us as individual people, we're going to be part of that change. It's going to be us buying electric cars, cutting down on meat. We're going to have to make these individual decisions. We're going to be part of this change. And so why not start sooner than later? Especially since these emissions stay in the atmosphere for a very long time. The sooner we start, the least bad it will get. Yeah, we're trying to save as many people as we can starting now. Do you have anything else you want to say? Yeah, I think I just can't emphasize enough the community aspect of this problem. The power of individuals being involved in this movement. Individuals influence the public perception of certain issues. And that definitely in turn influences the way that politicians think about these things. Over the last decade or so, we've seen a major shift in people's perceptions of climate change, especially in the young generation. Now, over half of Republicans under the age of 40 think that the government should be doing more to address climate change. And I think 10 years ago, that definitely was not the case. And because of that, politicians are listening to CCL volunteers. We've heard so many stories about how different things were five to 10 years ago. Then CCL members would go into congressional offices during lobby day. And for the more conservative members, they would meet with staffers who were basically not interested in what they had to say. More people at that time denied climate change outright. But last year, even people who were skeptical about climate change before are now asking questions. Only a handful of members in Congress were disinterested in those conversations. Most people wanted to know more. They wanted to know how it would affect their communities. And so seeing that shift is just amazing to me. And I'm reminded now of the story that I heard from longtime CCLers in my chapter, which is that my representative, Congresswoman Anna Eshoo, who is now a very vocal supporter of the carbon fee and dividend, she was actually originally not on board with this. It took about two years of CCL volunteers building that relationship with her that she finally came around to supporting the bill. And so that is all to say that it really does start with ordinary people. People talking to each other. Talking to elected officials. That's also what gives me a lot of hope. Just looking at the progress from 10 years ago and seeing how far we've come. And because of this shifting opinion now on climate change, the conversation in Congress is no longer about if we should do something about climate change. It's more about figuring out what the right solution should be. And that is so cool. And that is what makes me very hopeful for the future. And on that positive note, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. (laughs) You say you feel that you're tiny. How can you compare the problems of bear, but you care so you dare to face your fear? The planet situation is getting more dire. You talked about the hurricanes and the California fire. You stepped up to help the world because we need you. When you saw the devastation in Jakarta in Indonesia, (laughs) you know we have the capacity. You know we can survive, but we've got to start to change to thrive and stay alive when it comes to climate change. There is no immunity. The cure is to fight within a caring community. It's not binary. Tell stories and it's explainable. We've got to change. What we're doing is not sustainable. The ozone layer was a problem, but you remember when we solved a big problem then and we can solve one again. To communicate to people in a way that is effective, understand their current worldview, they'll listen to you and not be 
info selective. It doesn't happen overnight. You've got to have continued tenacity, but you can call your congressperson with just five minutes of capacity. Experiential communicating will help them see, be vulnerable to your audience, tell them a story. Ife loves the learning and community. It does in center. She gives a lot of credit to Dave Kane, her mentor. Ife has the expectation that we can save the world and nation. We have to look at the younger generation with another Bay Area organization. She had to change course. You're supporting each other, but they still won't endorse. We're making progress with Congress, and we don't want it to stall. You have a message for us all. Pick up the phone and make the call for clear communication. It is essential. We have the potential. Just make our talks experiential. You wow. told us the facts about the carbon tax, how a fee and <laughs> dividend will help emissions end. Wow. I'm so <laughs> That is so impressive. I can't believe you just did that. <laughs> Ife talked about her inspiring belief that the world will be a better place in the future and her expectation that the younger generation will take significant action against climate change. She certainly is an example of that. If I wasn't already focusing on climate change mitigation, I most definitely would be after listening to her speak. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, please visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Like many of her peers, Ife learned about climate change in school and has always understood that the climate was changing and the danger the world was in. But it's very different to understand than to act. When she read about the impact of climate change to Indonesia, further mapped it to the impact it was having throughout the world, and saw the growing impact to herself and those she loved, she took action. Now she encourages others to move from understanding to action. Action to help mitigate climate change. Mm-hmm.